All right, let's pray together as we open the Word of God. Heavenly Father, thank you for the joy you give us in following the Lord Jesus. I love that song. It helps me to worship you. I just pray that they would be able to see Jesus today in Colossians 3 and that we would all find our identity in you and live out of that. We love you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. So last week, if you weren't here, we did Christian Identity Part 1. These were a series of messages I did condensed and adultified, if you will, (laughs) for the body here. But I did them at youth camp. And so we said that our identity is unique as believers because what? Well, God gives it to us. It's not achieved, it's received. I said that because God knows us best, loves us most, and can change us forever, he's the one we have to turn to for life. And to live out of that is what we're going to talk about today. You know, I think sometimes life challenges us in that identity, doesn't it? And we need encouragement. We need to go to the Word of God to find how we live out our identity. We feel alone. We're anxious about work. We struggle with sin in our lives. Our relationships don't always turn out the way we want. And so we ask, is it true that God really does love me? Is it true that He really knows what's best for me? Because this doesn't seem... Like he really does know me and love me. And that's, I think, what we want to answer today is how we live out of that uh, reality of being loved by God and known by him. So uh, we're going to be in Colossians 3 today. So you can open your Bibles there. I'll be reading from Colossians 3 in the ESV. And we're going to answer two questions. Actually, God answers two questions for us there. He says, what do we need to do to be and where am I going? He touches on that, and I'll touch on that briefly. But before we get there, I want to show you this awesome picture. Um, We dug in the annals, and we found Matthew Nadelku all ready for work at McDonald's. Um, And just for my uh, wife's wonderful 22nd birthday today, it is her birthday today, um, I, I put up there something she always laughs about in the oven mitt from Arby's. What's the point of doing this? Um... You know, when, we, when we're hired by a job, it doesn't have to be McDonald's or Arby's. I don't care what job it is. We are that thing, right? We are a McDonald's employee or an Arby's employee. I would be able to wear the mitt, and actually I did at different times in parades. It was quite humiliating and hot. Um, but we aren't very good at it. If you were to come to me on that first day at Arby's and ask me anything about the menu, I would have not been able to tell you. In fact, I would have probably messed up your order and did for a long time. Matthew did the same he shared with me. We, we don't even know what we're doing. And this points to a reality that we're going to find in Colossians 3, but all throughout the scriptures. That as believers, we have this kind of paradox that we have to become what we are. In other words, we have to good at, get good at what God has called us to be as believers. You don't, Bob said one time, you don't, unbelievers when they come to know the Lord, I'm not quoting you, Bob, but paraphrasing, you still stink. Right? You still stink. It's a process of growing to be like the Lord Jesus. We have to become what we are in reality. And I think we're going to see that today. And that's the main theme, becoming what we are in Christ. So let's start with the first four verses of Colossians. Chapter 3. Since you have been raised to life, to new life, excuse me, with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven and not the things of earth, for you died to this life, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in his glory. So I think the first thing I want to point out to you today is that we have to focus on Jesus Christ to become what we are. And that is absolutely key. I want to take a brief dive into the passage here and, and say, what do we need? Well, first, we need union with Christ. And Paul, and obviously God is telling us through Paul that without union in Christ, salvation, being raised to new life, nothing of what I'm saying to you today has any application. We must see Jesus as our Savior first. We have to have union with him to have what? Communion daily. And that's really what we're talking about, living out the Christian life. And so, Paul brackets the middle part of this section. What I'm saying the middle part is about is focus. We need to focus. It says, set your sights on the realities of heaven. It says, think about the things above. This is the thought life of the believer, grounded in the reality of salvation. Got to start there. But then he goes on to the thought life of the believer. See, our desires are checked by our mind. I'm on a diet. I want pizza. My mind says, no, that's good, but you shouldn't. You'll get fat again, right? Sin works the same way. If you look at James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, there's a little, you don't have to go there. I'm just going to tell you really quickly, there's a progression there. It says, desires have to pass through the mind to produce sin. So Paul here is saying, in order to live out your new identity, to become what you are, Your mind plays a key role on that. What you are looking at, what you are focusing, what you're setting in front of your face is really important in the Christian life. John Owen, great writer, says that the mind is the watchtower of the soul. So our minds approve or disapprove of whatever our desires say we need to do. And therefore, we act out of that. Paul is saying, when our minds are thinking about Christ when it's set on the realities of heaven, we will act out of our new identity. It's really as simple as that. It's not focusing on the sin to kill the sin necessarily. It's looking to Christ, setting our sight upward so that then we can live out of that identity. So practically then, let's say someone wrongs us. Kids, maybe, parents wrong a son, an employee wrongs you, your boss steals your work. I don't know what it is. But we have a desire for revenge there sometimes, don't we? Like, man, I need to get even with this person, this dude. My kid, I I confess, sometimes I'm like, man, (laughs) that was pretty awful, right? But our minds then kick into gear. If we savor and think about revenge for too long, we're going to carry it out. It's true. Paul says instead, under the influence, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, set your sights on the realities of heaven. So when those temptations and those desires wrong or right, come in. You're able to approve or disapprove. Romans 12 says the same thing. Be renewed in your minds. It's a key facet of the Christian life. We are to consider ourselves as dead, it says. We are to think on Christ. So I think another question this passage answers is right there when it says, set your sights on the realities of heaven. Why? Because Christ sits there. I have a good illustration about where we're going and getting there safe from Mexico. So many of you know that we went to Mexico for a missions trip here. Gosh, it's been six months probably now. And when we went there, we were really excited to go. A lot of things happened that kind of tempered our excitement. God did great things. We all got sick, some of you know that. But one thing that was absolutely terrifying for me was 
I was asked to drive a van. So here I am in Mexico. Uh, the GPS on my phone doesn't work too well. And my assistant driver, the guy, Javis was his name, he doesn't really speak English. So I'm going through a translator. There were times when there was no translator. I learned left, right, and straight very quickly. I, I couldn't even pronounce him, but I knew what he was saying to me. Okay, So not only that, but this van is clutch. It's a clutch. And I knew how to drive a clutch, but it had been like maybe 10 years since I drove a clutch. And the streets look like that. That's actually maybe a little too uh, level. They were like 30 to 45 degrees. In fact, the place where we parked by Martin Tui's house was literally 45 degrees, and I had to park this way so that when we started, I had to put in the clutch and hit the gas so that I wouldn't go backward with 12 people and kill them all and myself. It was really scary. The kids, I mean, I like to be a drive. I like aggressive driving. They know that, some of them who drive in the van, but this was a different experience. Now, why do I say that? Because you should not trust me to drive you in Mexico. <laughs> I, have, I had no idea where I was going, and I had no ability to get you there safe, apart from God's grace. And here's, here's why I think Paul says, set your sights on the reality of heaven where Christ is, because he's the one who knows the way. And he's the one who can get us there safe. He's gone before us, it says in Hebrews. He experienced death and temptation. He experienced everything you and I did. And he got there safely. He was raised from the dead and he sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And that is wonderful. We look forward to that. We look forward to being with him forever. That is where we're going if we know him as Savior. And I just got to say, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So if you don't know him as your Savior, you have a different destiny today. But if you do, this is where you're going to be with him forever. And he knows the way. He can get there. He's been through everything you have. I just want to reiterate that. That is foundational to our identity. We can trust this man, this God, because he's been there and he knows the way. And I think that's why Paul says where Christ sits. That's absolutely key to his unpacking of identity. I think this means for us that we need to consider Christ. And Bob has encouraged me specifically uh, this last couple of weeks, and I've been in it, to think about Christ's early life, the formation of his identity, if you will. So this is a little bit of a homework assignment for you. Uh, but Luke chapter 2, Mark 2, all the beginning of the Gospels really are absolutely crucial. There's a reason it's there. And I knew that, and I'd heard it preached to me, but it became very real for me this week. As I'm thinking about how Jesus' identity was formed, you think about him at 12 years old, sitting in the temple, learning about who he was and what he was going to do. You think about his baptism and how God the Father speaks to him from heaven. And what does he say? Remember last week, we're loved by God, so we're secure in our identity. He says to him, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus then goes out immediately into the desert for temptation. And what does he do in the desert? He doesn't respond in, with any kind of reasoning. He quotes scripture. He speaks the word of God to Satan, and he makes it when Adam failed. Adam had everything in the garden. Jesus had nothing in the desert. No food, no water, no friends, and he succeeded. 
That's really important to consider Christ's early life, the formation of his identity. So go read that and worship as you read it. I did even this morning. It really sets the tone for us. Because Jesus is no different than we are. Remember we said we're loved even as the Father loves the Son? The same things that God sees in the Son, he sees in us now because of our salvation and Jesus' death on the cross. That is amazing. Uh, Virginia Prodon, I don't know if some of you guys know her. Some of you do. The, the youth and discipleship good should know her well because we read this book, Saving My Assassin, last year. She is a good example of this. She was a lawyer for the communist government in Nicolae Ceausescu's reign in the 80s in Romania. Some of our families actually here today live through that. Cool stories they have to share with you. But So she came to know the Lord as a lawyer. And her identity was so secure that she was able to live out of it and defend Christians. They wanted to take their property, she would defend them. And that's so funny because their goal for her was to do the opposite. But because she trusted Jesus and knew her identity was secure, she did that. And it came to the point where they decided, Nikolai did, that he was going to assassinate her. So assassin came into her room, or her office, excuse me, at her law firm. And he put a, he sat down and put a gun right on his, his leg and said, I'm here to kill you. Your life is in my hands. Now, she recounts this, but to make a long story short, she felt God was encouraging her to share the gospel with this man. She said, even if I die, that's what he needs to hear. So she started quoting scripture, and the man begins to soften and even tear up a little bit. But when she stops quoting scripture, he gets angry and agitated. Interesting. I'm not saying that that's what we do in life and death situations. I'm not saying that's the remedy for all, but that's what happened to her. So she she shared scripture with him, and he left the room, and she was alive. 20 years later, fast forward it, she's working in, in Dallas. She actually came and spoke to us. And a man comes into her office and sits down. Same man. He said, because of your testimony and boldness in the face of my persecution of you, I trusted Jesus. And not only that, my son is a pastor in the Dallas area. Man, that is, that is an example of living out our identity just like Jesus did. Resisting temptation, sharing the gospel, and the results are up to God. In that case, it was awesome. A legacy of godliness for her. I think a couple of notes by way of application that remember that what we focus on, we become like. I said that last week, and that's what this passage is saying. When we focus on the Lord Jesus, we will become like him. I want to show you a couple of pictures here. What are you thinking about when you think about that? Yeah, video games. You want to play them? Maybe. Uh, this is Stranger Things, a show I love. Really good. My opinion. Uh, Starbucks. Kids love this. I love Starbucks. When you look at that, when I look at it, I want it. A phone. Maybe you're like, man, I wish I was on my phone right now. Or a bed. <laughs> maybe you are really tired. But what, what am I communicating with that? I am saying that whatever we put in front of us, we will want that thing. And that is exactly what Paul says. Put in front of yourselves the Lord Jesus this week. And one of the ways that has really been a super encouraging thing to me, just like Virginia and the Lord Jesus in the desert with temptation and so many of the guys that we work with in the youth group and others, Scripture memory is a huge blessing to us. Because it gets into our soul and then when we're faced with temptation or trials or even when we want to encourage someone, it comes right out. 
comes right out. And so, I don't know, that, that's one of the things that came to mind looking at Jesus' early life and, and my own experiences. Scripture memory. Maybe you can commit a half of a verse or a verse or a chapter, whatever, this week to memory. It will serve you well. I, I really believe it will. Secondly, I think motivating each other properly is really important. Because again, if we focus on the bad things that we've done to motivate us, in other words, sin, guilt, shame as motivators, fear, we're never going to end up at the place God wants us to be. That is so true. In fact, remember, if you have your Bibles open to Colossians 3, look at how he starts. Look at how Paul starts the passage. He says, because you're such terrible people and you stink at life, no, he says, since you have been raised to new life. Man, the motivator, the only real trustworthy motivator in the Christian life for long-term godliness is a resurrected Jesus who is your Savior. That's the only power we have. You can't get up enough sin and guilt to make you follow him well, maybe for a time, but it'll end in destruction. And so I think we need to motivate each other properly. And this says applications in parenting, in ministry here at the church. I was very convicted thinking about this this week. I don't want to get up here anymore and say to you, man, we're desperate for teachers. Please help. No, man, it should be the joy of the Lord in serving. The resurrected Savior is the one who helps us to get out there. We can't shame ourselves when we don't share the gospel with people. So we look to Jesus and say, man, next time I want to be like him. I want to be like Virginia. That is the only motivator of the Christian life that bears any weight for us. The resurrected Jesus Christ. So I just want to say to you, let's hold up the virtues of Jesus instead of our failings this week to motivate us to do well. It will serve you well. So we have to focus on the Lord Jesus to become what we are. To become what we are, we have to focus on the Lord Jesus. Next, to become what we are, we have to kill. Now, I'm sure that... Our flesh, mine included, would have loved to get up here and preach a family-friendly sermon to you, like many churches around the Dallas area. But the Christian life is not always family-friendly. It is a long process in the same direction of mortifying, putting to death, killing the flesh. And it's hard work. Look at Colossians 3, 5. So put to death. That is not an easy word. Put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world, but now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other. For you have stripped off your old nature, old sinful nature, and all its wicked deeds. Man, that passage, those verses are seeping with identity words, aren't they? They're talking about our reality of being in Christ and what that means for us. Those words there are not family friendly, though. <laughs> it says, make no provision, have nothing to do with, put to death. Really, this means to render powerless, like it's used of Abraham twice, of his old body. I'm not going to go into detail, but basically it's saying his body was powerless to have kids. He's 100 years old. That's the only other two times it's used in the New Testament, right? So this idea of rendering powerless sin to reproduce, essentially. That's our task. That is our task. It's hard work. 
It's carry your cross type of stuff. Isn't that what Jesus said, though? It's like, look, if you want to follow me, you gotta, you got to ignore that other stuff. He even said, let the dead bury their own dead. Man, that is harsh words. But that's the Christian life. Even good things, God wants us to lay aside to follow him. Rosaria Butterfield and a couple other ladies had this conference, and one of the things they said, I was listening to it on identity and sexuality, and they said that finding your identity in Christ looks a lot like death. Death to ourself, death to other pursuits in life, though good, they aren't worth it. Death to sinful desires. She says this, Every time I embrace God's grace, every time I read the word of God, and it convicts me of my sin, every time I respond to God's wisdom in repentance and confession of sin, every time I worship God and eat his body and drink his blood, I am risen from the tomb and resurrected into the light by the power of Jesus Christ himself, who declares to me that there is no condemnation for me any longer because I am clothed in his righteousness. Remember 2 Corinthians 5? We are what? The righteousness of God. She ends that quote by saying, The risen Christ in whom I stand declares to you, Satan, that you no longer have any claim on me. You know, I think we do need to consider the terrible effects of sin in our life to be of any good. John Owen said, The person, he that has slight thoughts of sin, never had great thoughts of God. And we need to look at the Lord and we need to kill sin because it is terrible. If you want to see how terrible is sin, all you have to do is look at Jesus on the cross. Look at what God had to do. It says in this passage, the wrath of God. God was mad, basically, at sinners. And it's true, he is. If you're not in Christ, the wrath of God rests on you. But if you are in Christ, there is no wrath for you. Such a change. So, by way of application. I think there's a phrase that I heard in... Colorado one time, sin management. Sin management. It's a funny term. Think about it. But isn't that what we do so often? We manage the sin in our lives. Instead of doing what Colossians 3 says, we manage it. We put it over here and try to keep it under control. Don't we? I laugh too, brother, because I'm the same way. God says, don't manage your sin. Put it to death. And we manage our sin by replacing socially unacceptable sins with acceptable ones. There's a really sad example of this uh, in the Christian community with Mark Driscoll um, out at Mars Hill. You know, he was very vulgar. You go read about the demise of that church. It can happen to anyone, guys. Very famous guy, wrote books. But on the side, he was buying his own books. He was very vulgar, rude, authoritarian, proud, all the things that this pastor says not to do. But they managed his sin and said it's okay because he's drawing crowds. It's okay. But let's not just leave it out there. Because that's easy to like cast judgment on him, right? But what in our lives? What are the sins you're managing instead of putting to death? Hours on YouTube or Call of Duty. My phone. Instagram. Facebook. Even good things. But that they are managed sin. Because you spend too much time on them. We need to take drastic measures. I think that's absolutely clear from this passage. Taking drastic measures, Jesus said that too. He said, cut it off, right? Instead of feeding our sin and coddling it. Some things are acceptable socially, even in our circles, sadly, but they're not acceptable to God. So put to death the sin. Don't manage it. Don't let it fester. Don't let it grow. And I don't know what those things are. We each have unique things that Satan knows and our flesh loves.
Put him to death. That's what Paul says. Third, to become what we are, we need to change our clothes. Let's look at the last section here of 1 through 11. I'm going to read verses 10 and 11. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. So this is a great illustration. I love it. God is so smart, isn't he? He's so wise. He talks about putting on clothes for the new life, to live out our identity, to become what we are. And that's awesome because it's just an outward representation of what we like. Right? It's the outward part. But to get the outward part, you have to have the inner renewal by the Holy Spirit, don't we? To put on these good deeds, we have to have an inner desire to do that. Now, I think... Some people understand this changing clothes illustration better than others. Maybe my wife. She loves clothes. She's, I think, got a good fashion sense. Some ladies in here. But I think maybe Andrew Carell has a really good grasp on this. This is his shoes closet at home. Holy cow. And Sam Johnson, where are you? Yours is probably just as bad. These guys love shoes. Okay, this is a lie. That's not his shoes closet. But... You know, the thing is, shoes, the clothes we put on, right? This is what I'm saying. I don't know. Why do you wear a tie and you don't? Why do I like sandals versus shoes? I don't know. You know, the thing was today I had a choice. I had a couple of choices today, just a small aside, to put on something. And I think it works such so well as an illustration. You know, to either disappoint my wife on her birthday and wear sandals up here or disappoint the kids who I told I would not wear shoes today. So actually, I... uh I brought a change of sandals today, and my wife is probably cringing up there. I can see it already, but I did bring my chartreuse sandals today. Now, this is maybe a little silly, maybe even a little too silly. I don't know, but I hope it sticks in your mind to point you to this passage. These don't matter. They don't change me as a person. I just like them. When we, when we act out of our new identity, it's not that, that those actions, it's not works-based. They don't change us. They don't make us a better person. They're just out of our character. Bob says we're known by our default actions. Matthew 25, go read it. Our inner character determines how we act. But it's still important. And so Paul says, change your clothes, replace anger with joy, etc. So to become what we are, we need to change clothes because we have a new Identity. It says there, if you look at, uh, as you learn to know your creator. I want to spend just a second on that part because I think this is really important. I think it ties into identity directly. How so? Well, we learned that we are known by God because he's our creator last week, right? That was one of the things that I said was super important. So I don't think it's any mistake that Paul writing this says, your creator, and to know him because he knows you. What is knowledge? This is a super important thing for us, I believe. Knowledge in the scripture, real knowledge, is not just facts. You can know everything in the Bible and go to hell. 100%. Demons know it. Satan knows it. He quoted it to Jesus. That is not real knowledge. Knowing facts won't get you anywhere. It's important, 
to know the truth, but it's only a part of the picture. And I think that's the one, sinfully, which we rely on too much. Real knowledge also includes an intimate relationship. John 17, 3, Genesis 1, look at how the word know is used in the scripture. It's an intimate relationship. So we got truth, intimate relationship, and then Philippians 3.10 in this passage as well, it's obedience and experience. Very interesting. In other words, to know something well, you have to try it. Right? So, Richard Yee gave me this great example. If you want to know how to love someone well, just go work in retail right now. Or in the fast food service industry. You, you will see, or at your jobs, I'm not just limiting, go, go try to love someone who's very difficult to love and you'll see, you'll need the Holy Spirit's work in your life. <laughs> I mean, to not respond in impatience and anger, even on the road for me, right? So you go try to love well. You try to obey what Jesus says. You go through that experience and the truth will become more real to you. I think that is absolutely key for us. There's a cycle of knowledge there that we can't short-circuit. We have to have it all. We have to have it all to know our Creator. That's the first point from here. Secondly, I think we need to spend a second talking about role. I said that God is the one who gives us our worth. When we talk about identity, we're talking about self-worth, right? That's one of the, or not self-worth, the worth that we have, that God assigns to us. If we look here, it says in verse 11, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you are, a list of things. Galatians 3.28 adds male and female. Super important for our culture now, I believe. It doesn't... In one sense, I know those are important. God has given them to us, but they aren't what matters most. And that's where we can really speak love and truth into our culture. Being a man or a woman isn't what matters most about you. Your gifting in the church isn't what matters most about you. Being a parent or not a parent, a dad, a grandpa, none of those things define you. That is absolutely clear from here in Galatians 3.28 and elsewhere. What defines you, going back again, is Christ. Being in Him. I know Jim Hummel up there loves that. In Christ is the defining metaphor or words for our relationship, for our identity, I believe, in the Scriptures. And there's problems because we don't like that sometimes. We don't like the rules God has put for that, even though they're for our good. Or the things we have to do for a man, it's like, man, i got to get up here on Sunday morning and i got to say something that's spiritual to the body. It doesn't happen enough, so I know, you say, I know you're thinking that. I think that sometimes. Or ladies, the other way. There's great contentment, though, in being in Christ and not finding our identity in those things. Okay, I think that's important from that text. I think we see it there, and it's really important for us to remember that our jobs, none of those things define us. Christ does and his love for us and his knowledge of us. I think an illustration of the practicality of this is my son, Hezekiah. You know, he goes, he, he loves to be a big boy. He likes to try to fight Walter, and Walter's nice and lets him try to punch him and all that stuff. But he loves to help in the yard. And so the day had come, it was this spring, and we were, he was going to get a help in the yard, be a big boy. And he put on all his clothes, and he got out his tools. He has a little rake. And his job in the yard was to pick up the sticks in the backyard. Man, his, his, his demeanor changed from super happy to like angry at me. Seriously, in like a second. You know what's funny? We talked through that. I said, hey, if you don't pick up these sticks, I can't mow the lawn. 
And then your mom can't do her job, and we won't have a nice lawn. And as he obeyed, and as he did that job, his demeanor again became very joyful. Till the end of that day, and the next day, he told everyone what he did to help. Isn't that exactly like us in the Christian life? We do it. We do as God asks. We'll end up joyful in the end, full of joy, instead of complaining. And I, I'm like that too. I'm like that so many times, sadly. I think another phrase in this passage that we need to look at is that he lives in all of us. And I just want to say that the power of the indwelling spirit of God, Jesus Jesus Christ himself working inside of our souls to make us into what we are, gives us the joy, the sense of worth that we'll need, and it never stops. How could Virginia be happy and share? How can we, how can Bob get up and say, I trust in God still when he's going to die soon? The power of the Holy Spirit working in his life. And so we have to change our clothes by the power of God, but we need to do that practically. We need to be okay with what God has set for us. Live out of that reality. I just want to say that the solution to, if you're struggling with this, like we all do at different times, the solution is never to try harder. It's pretty clear in John 15 that Jesus says, how are you going to make fruit? You're going to go out there and try really hard? And he says, you can't do anything apart from me. You have to abide in me. And this just draws us right back to the beginning of that passage. Focus on Christ. We know Jesus by his attributes. We're told to imitate him. And if we look at the attributes of Jesus, what is there to imitate? Well, we give. Because Jesus is the greatest giver. We want to know some clothes to put on. Be a generous person. Because God is generous. He's given his son. He gave everything he could. He gives to us daily what we need, breath and life, to the unsaved and saved together. We love because Jesus first loved us. Look at Christ's love for everyone who came to him. Look at the way he treated those people who were needy. I mean, it could go on and on. Whatever attribute you want to get better at, just look to the Lord. Look at his attributes. See how he interacted with people. Then go try it. And God will be with you. All right. A couple of final thoughts here. In our culture, and in communist China, communist Romania... Atheist Europe, Hindu nationalistic India, wherever you go, the Christian identity is the only one that makes sense and is the only one that has any real power to change someone. Because it's not rooted in, ex- in, in myself or other people's opinions. God never changes. And so we have a unique opportunity. We shouldn't criticize the culture. We should be excited right now because this is a chance for us to share the truth and to share about Jesus because it's the only identity that will change anyone's life. We have a unique combination, looking to our Lord and other places in Scripture, of boldness and humility, of grace and truth, of love and real justice. We don't, we don't punt on justice, social justice. No, we have the real justice. We have the real judge who knows what everyone has ever done and is going to take care of it. We don't punt on those things. Actually, we have the truth and we can share that with them. That's the kind of God we have. I also want to say that the gospel, what we've been talking about, a gospel identity, loved by God, known by God, changed by God, know where we're going because he's been there already, it keeps the main thing the main thing. So you can win the argument and you can lose the heart. What do I mean? You ever had a boss ask you to do something that you didn't really want to do even if he was right? I have. 
what happens if he just comes down on you heavy-handed? You might, he might win that argument, but he's lost your heart and he's lost your productivity. Maybe you've been the boss in that situation or the employee. That's what I'm talking about. And so we are citizens right now of heaven and nothing else. Nothing else. So don't win the argument with your neighbors and lose their heart. Practically, and this may be hard to hear for some of us, it was for me at first when I read it, if someone comes into your life, your home, your church, your school, your work, wherever, we preach faith and not heterosexuality. That is not what we attack. We share the risen Savior and not our conservative politics if you have them. That is not what they need. We tell stories about the one who redeems and not our wealth, our great deeds, our sense of order, how great our home is, what we've done to make us great, our kids. You name it. What makes us a light to the world is the risen Savior and nothing else. And honestly, why would they want that anyway? They, there are enemies of that right now. You, you don't need to share any of that stuff. You need to share a Savior who rose from the dead and paid for their sins and yours. That is our approach to culture. Because they aren't changed. And actually, they're going to end up worse if they change some of those things but don't trust in Jesus. That's what he said to the Pharisees, actually. So that should be our approach. We share a risen Savior. We share this God you've heard about, you can read about in the Bible, that we know and love. Many of you have served for 80 years. That's what we share. And nothing else. So, a lot more could be said and is written about identity, but in this passage, whoops, I think we see that we need to focus on Christ to become what we are. We need to kill, put to death the flesh. To become what we are. And we need to change our clothes. We need to act out of that new identity. Be a light to the world. We're loved by God. We're known by Him. This is a great God. My prayer is for all of us that we'll live a little more this week out of this identity. A little more. A little more next week until the Lord calls us home. You pray with me to that end right now. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us so greatly. I love these people here, and I just pray that we would be a light to the world because of who you are and the changes you've brought into our life, Lord. Help us to put on the right clothes for work this week, to clothe ourselves with humility and kindness and graciousness, to have a good answer, to defend the faith rightly. Help us to treat our kids as you would have us treat them and our wives and our friends, Lord. Grow us into a body that is continuing the work of Jesus Christ, of sharing about him. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.